1: Today is March the 17th, 2017 This is episode 1969 of the Survival Podcast. And, of course, it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for questions for the expert council with cleanup batting by me, as always. In this case, I'll be following up to the final expert council member's uh, assertion that freedom is under attack. I'll tell you more about that in a second. Do want to note that today is Drink Green Beer Day? Uh, I probably won't. I'm not wearing green, and if anybody pinches me, I'm gonna punch him in the head. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't make a big deal out of St. Pat's Day, but I, I don't mind that other people do. So much so that I I titled today's episode. Uh, expert counsel question answers St. Pat's Day uh, edition. So, uh, so I'll throw a little homage to those of you guys that make a big deal out of this, uh, this day. Uh, all I ever remember this being is people pinching each other in school, and when I go to older people using it as a reason to get drunk um in in the catholic church it was also an actual uh, holy day of obligation but uh we'll leave that aside for now what are we going to talk about on this st patrick's day i got a question for nick ferguson on labeling your plants when you're running a backyard nursery i got a question on exogenesis supplements by for gary collins uh also dealing with orientation of a home for passive solar in a difficult situation for ben falk using steam to treat respiratory issues with dock bones Getting a SCOBY for kombucha. With a SCOBY with kombucha, you'll find out soon from Erica Strauss. Investing in your 401k if you have limited options with John Pugliano. More on the attack on homeschooling with Michael and Sue Laprise, And they're going to tell you that they think it's really more of an attack on freedom. And I'll follow up on why there is a war on freedom. Well, the follow up to Mike and Sue's segment. And that'll be our show for the day. Before we get to all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ReadyMade Resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything, for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at ReadyMadeResources.com. Hey, guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day. Well, you'll hear him on the air today. It's John Pugliano with the Wealth Steading Pro- Podcast. It provides timely information on investing and market trends. John is an expert council member and a great friend. Check out his podcast learn his 10 wealth building principles. With that, let's take a look at the year It was the episode. I'm going to tell you that I debated a long time before I chose what one of these I was going to read today because all four of the main uh, topics are pretty important for the time we have the My Massacre and the Trial of Lieutenant William Colley. We have the Fire Spreads to Czechoslovakia, which is about protesters setting themselves on fire. We have this: the River is on Fire, again contributed by Southpaw Ben. We have Bad Vibrations uh, and Occupy Wall Street uh, by Alex Shrugged. Notable births this year, uh, Linus Torvald, Torvalds developed the Linux kernel, a Unix-like operating system. Ron Ford died in 2016 at 46 of cancer. Mayor of Toronto caught smoking crack. Andrew Breitbart died 2012-43 of heart failure. Founder of Breitbart.com, a liberal-turned-realist. Uh, in entertainment, Connor Trippner, Trip Tucker on uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Tyler Perry, actor, comedian, and writer. In music, Ice Cube, Jay-Z, and J-Lo, all born this year, none of which I'm a fan of. In movies, Matthew McConaughey, Jennifer Aniston, and Kate Blanchard. Born this year in comedy, Jack Black and Zach oculus I like both of those guys. This year in film, Anti-Hero, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Midnight Cowboy, and Easy Rider. Breaking the Social Norms, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, and Cactus Flower. Biting Satire, Alice's Restaurant. Musicals, Hello Dolly and Paint Your Wagon, and in comedy, support your local sheriff and a boy named Charlie Brown. This year in TV, Hee Haw, Scooby-Doo, and Monty Python's Flying Circus are all launched. This year in music, in the year 2525, If Man Is Still Alive, I've played that one before for you guys, Aquarius, Let the Sunshine In, The Fifth Dimension, Love Child by Diana Ross and the Supremes, and Pinball Wizard by The Who from their rock opera, Tommy. In other news, this is the year the AIDS virus actually arrives in the U.S. They don't know it yet, but a young man dies of a mysterious disease, later identified as AIDS. I think we think of this mostly as an 80s thing, but that's how far back it goes. Arp- ARPANET sends out its first message, the Internet age has begun. Ted Kennedy drives off a bridge with Mary Joe Kopechny. Mary Joe is trapped in an air pocket under the car. Ted walks away. F you, Ted, F you, your dog, you dog and your worthless life. Oh, did I say that out loud? Alex shrugged. And then there is the moon landing, Woodstock, and everything that is more important than all of the above. I apologize to historians everywhere I didn't forget, but those events have been covered. I have run out of time, Alex shrugged. Yeah, it was a big year. I'm going to read um, the My Lai Massacre and the trial of Lieutenant William Colley. 26 soldiers are charged with the murder of over 100 unarmed Vietnamese women, children, babies, and the elderly. Crime was committed last year by an American-led forces by, uh, uh, American forces led by Lieutenant William Colley, um... What did I say? I said it was Lieutenant Colonel. It's Lieutenant William Colley. Lieutenant William Colley, uh, leaflets had been dropped the previous day, warning of impending doom. The assumption, though no one said it, was the civilians would clear the area, leaving behind only enemy forces. Company C's job was to sweep through, kill the enemy, and confiscate any weapons. What actually happened was rape, murder, and mayhem. Company C was fresh out of training camp. This was their first major engagement, but the military can't write this off. Too many people know about it. So Lieutenant Colley is put on trial for murder. The question is, is it standard procedure to put a bullet in a kid? Maybe. Previous to this engagement, attacks had been coming from the rear, meaning that enemy forces were were dressing as civilians and trying to shoot troopers in the back. That famous photo of a general shooting a Vietnamese spy in the head is a classic example. Enemy combatants out of uniform found on the battlefield are considered spies. They are not protected by the Geneva Convention. Children have been attacking troops as well, so a soldier cannot know who is friend or his foe. It is not an excuse, it's an explanation, but rape is not explainable at all. Lieutenant Cotley claims he did nothing wrong, nevertheless he's sentenced to life in prison. He is the only one convicted out of 26 charge. Quote, I am very sorry. If you're asking why I did not stand up to them when I was given the orders, I will have to say that I was a a second lieutenant getting orders from my commander, and I followed them. Foolishly, I guess, end quote. William Colley, August 19, 2009, making his first public apology for my life. My take by Alex Shrugged. A federal judge reviewed Colley's case and concluded that he was denied some significant rights to a fair trial. I agree that he was denied those rights, although I'm not sure it would have done him any good. Colley was released on June 13, 1974, but not exonerated. My sense is he was selected by the military as a scapegoat. In the Bible, the scapegoat carries away the sins of the community and dies in the process. But when a reporter named Seymour Hirsch got wind of the story, the jig was up. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch carried the story with pictures of dead children. There was no room left for a cover-up. The reason I read this one is this was a major turning point at the war losing the support of the public. Many members of the United States public who were tacitly supporting the war, like okay, I don't like it, but you know, we gotta do what we gotta do. When when this came out, it was that we don't do that, but we're doing that. And Kali's main defense was this isn't something that's unique. Let that sink in. Kali's defense was I was told to do this and I did it, and guess what? That's normal. We do this all the time. Why are you picking me as your scapegoat? Because you got caught. i also point out that he was released in 1974, five years. And he had been released on parole and then thrown back in uh, during that period of time. So he didn't spend a full five years in prison, convicted of the murder of 100 people. And the other 26 soldiers that um, were put on trial, none of them were convicted. The people that actually did the rapes. The army knew what was going on. The army knew what was going on here. And this is what happens when you get in the middle of a nation's civil war. Because you do have people coming up from behind you. Because, let me explain something to you. This belief that all of the people in South Vietnam, except the Kong that slipped across the border, were in support of staying South Vietnam, is a lie. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. There were villainous actions on all three sides of this war. The North, the South, and the U.S. involvement. And that doesn't, that doesn't make less how bad the North Vietnamese were. Because these were bad guys. But we, on some level, stooped to their level. And we lost public support for the war More because of that than because of the number of American soldiers who died in it. We were not that far away from World War II. A lot more American soldiers died in World War II. But we understood the reason for what we were doing. And the media wasn't able to show America what war really looked like. What changed in America because of Vietnam was because we saw what war really looks like. And I don't think we're willing to look at it anymore, and that's why we're so easily led to war in this day and age. Because I think if most Americans knew what war really looked like, they wouldn't be so gun ho to send people off to partake in it, unless it was absolutely necessary for our specific defense. My take by Jack Spierkoe. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short, and you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low-Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an e kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as 5 bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to $0.18.3 an episode. And with that, let's go ahead and take our first uh, one of the day. This is for Nick Ferguson, and it is a question on labeling your plants. Nick, take it away, man.
2: Hey guys, it's Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com calling in to answer your questions on permaculture design, plant propagation, and how to make a homestead work on a tight budget. And this week, Jimmy wants to know, what do I use personally to label my plants? He started propagating more and more plants after following me and was wondering what I use to label them. He says it's a pain to ride on a hundred popsicle sticks and then they rot in half and you have to start all over again. And that he can order plastic plant labels, but there again, he has to write on each and every one of them. What do you use to write on the plastic labels if you use them? Sharpies fade after a year and paint markers are too broad-headed to use. Is there a printer that can be used to label plants that will last for years? Well, first of all, I don't know that a printer is the way to go unless you're a serious nursery operation. I've never really looked into it. Um, Maybe I should with uh the drastic increase in propagation that I've been doing the past year or two, but what I have done in the past for annuals or short-lived things, you know, tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that that I'm starting, then I just use the plant tags, the, you know, the plastic tags. I bought a box of a couple thousand tags for something like 20 bucks from Farm Tech, I think, years ago, and I'm still using them every year. I've still got a ton of them, I just write on the tag with a sharpie and I stick the part with the writing into the soil so it doesn't fade. The top portion just barely sticks out of the mulch or soil so I can find it later. Or if it's in a pot, then I slide the tag down the inside edge between the soil and the pot. Again, with the writing underground where it's protected from sunlight. And it'll last for years and years like that. So if you're starting flats... Then I only make out one tag per flat and I'll often write on the side of the flat with a sharpie as extra insurance in case something happens to the, f- to the tag because sometimes, you know, they, uh, they get pulled out or they get knocked over and then you don't know what goes where. But if you have written on the side of the flat what it is, then you got that backup. But if you're tagging lots of trees that are being planted out into a landscape, then You really need to have a permanent solution not something plastic and there are a couple options for you you can buy tags that are aluminum that you write on with a stylus, it's thin aluminum, Uh, you can use a stylus or a nail or anything like that a stick, just anything that will um, press into that thin aluminum and, and it lets you kind of emboss or inscribe on that aluminum tag and you just write what it is and what i do is I'd write the cultivar or type of tree and then use uh, an aluminum wire and loop it around a limb. Never tie something tight around the trunk of a tree. I don't even like tying those wires around the trunk of a tree. I always try to pick a limb um, and always loosely around a limb. And if you're doing large numbers of perennial plantings and you want a long-term solution to identification, then I suggest going with the following one of these following solutions. You can get aluminum discs that are pre-stamped with a number series for one-off specimens, you know, like one through a hundred. I've done that before. But if you have multiples, then you might want to get some blank aluminum or even stainless steel discs or rectangles, you know, just little tags that have the holes pre-drilled or just not pre-drilled and just stack them up and drill a hole through them and buy yourself a number punch set. So let's say you start out with, you know, the aluminum discs that are pre stamped with that number series, one through a hundred, and you have a couple of the same type of tree. Well just find anything that you can put, you know, that permanent number on. So let's say you have a dozen Red Haven peaches that you're setting out. You assign them a number. Let's say the number ten. And the way you keep track of the number assignments is in a spreadsheet. So each Red Haven peach tree gets a tag with that number, the number 10 or whatever number you pick. And the next cultivar, maybe it's a Bruce Plum. It gets assigned the number, I don't know, 15. So every Bruce Plum is tagged with an aluminum disc or stainless steel or whatever with the number 15. And all you need to do is be able to remember what number goes with what tree. It shouldn't take you long to kind of... Remember what, what the number assignment is when you check it often enough or just, you know, carry a printed out spreadsheet with you or, you know, save a digital copy on your smartphone or des- device and you'll be able to reference back to it. So there you have it. I use plastic tags for short term and aluminum tags for perennial plants and the numbered disks for fruit and nut trees because I want a whole bunch of them, and I want it to be quick and easy to identify and um, kind of serially number these uh, trees. So, yeah, that's it. All right, well, I have to get packing because I'm going to be headed through Texas to go teach at Jack's Workshop next week and do a little bit of consulting on the way and on the way back. Then I'll be headed to Missouri As soon as I'm home from Jack's workshop to supervise the installation of a couple ponds, over a thousand feet of swales, and the planting of a few thousand trees, which reminds me, if you didn't know, I'm a permaculture, sustainable ag holistic designer homesteading consultant by trade so if you've been looking at a certain piece of property and you want to design it to fit your needs from the ground up or even if you've had a piece of land for decades or generations and you need help troubleshooting and redesigning aspects of it please feel free to send me an email to nick at com. that's n-i-c-k at homegrownliberty.com. I do on site consultations all over the USA and internationally as well as long distance consulting. And don't forget, the weekend of April the 29th is the Plant Sale Party and Barter Fest at the Ferguson Homestead in Saline, Louisiana. So if you want to get together with like-minded people for a couple days of fun, trading, and learning some skills, shoot me an email for details. The event is free. Just bring your camping gear and come have a great time with us. Looks like about 20 people are coming already, and I hope a whole bunch more come. I hope whoever's listening to this um, thinks about it and looks into it because I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I hope my answer helps you out, Jimmy. Best of luck in your plant propagation endeavors. Do good things.
1: Nick Ferguson, known for simple solutions to complex problems once again. Uh, Next, I have a question for uh, Gary Collins on um, exogenesis ketosis-type supplements. Um, This is something my wife actually asked me to look into, and I'd come away with it with. It probably won't do what you think it'll do. I'm interested to see what Gary uh, thinks about it.
3: Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com. Answering all your questions in health, wellness, the primal lifestyle, simple living, off the grid, remote living, all that kind of good stuff. And I want to announce my new book is out, Going Off the Grid, The How-To Book of Simple Living and Happiness. It's available on my website, PrimalPowerMethod.com amazon and in kindle format so just wanted to mention that today we have a question about exogenous ketones the supplement which i have heard of it's been a while actually i tossed this thing aside quite a while ago uh as with most supplements that claim uh miraculous uh, effects i usually just toss it right out the first thing I did is I had to go look back at this product and see who's selling it. And this is what I always do, and this is what I recommend to people. Anytime you have a question, especially something like this, it's like a 120 to 130 bucks a bottle. That's just outrageous. Um, most of the companies selling the this product is MLM, multi level marketing companies and anyone who's listened to any of my stuff knows I do not support those companies in any form whatsoever. They're a pyramid scheme. They had to change their name. It's a marketing technique that puts basically the seller as the buyer and then they push it on their friends and family. It's a total BS marketing scheme. I never, ever recommend products from these companies. I don't care what the product is, especially supplements. It's guaranteed to be At the very best, a mediocre to poor supplement with an outrageous markup because there's multi-tiers in a multi-level marketing scheme and everyone's got to get their cut along the way. And the only people who ever make money are the people who create these multi-level marketing schemes. So there you go on that. There's Gary's get on his soapbox about that. Now the science behind it. Basically what this product is, exogenous ketones, it's ingesting the ketones instead of, it, it, trying to force your body into ketosis, burning fat in, instead of your body naturally doing it through the production, the, the down regulation of, of, uh, insulin and, uh, and glycogen and, uh, well, actually glycogen, you, you have to utilize your, your stores of glycogen. Then it kicks into glucagon, which then kicks in the ketone body process being made in your liver. So this puts you into a fat burning mode. Now, this person said that people, that these products are Tau Dine, that you can get into it in like one hour as opposed to three days. Here's the deal. It's complete bullshit. I'll just be honest. This is false. The only people who benefit from these products are basically highly competitive athletes that use it as a ketone body source to produce more ADP or more energy. And it's not that high of a level, to be honest with you. So even for an athlete, a high competing athlete, if it gives them kind of this psychological edge, you know, uh, fine. Um, the physiology behind it is very minimal at best. So for anyone trying to lose weight um, or go into uh, ketosis quicker, no, it's it doesn't work that way. Your body is very smart. It has to go through the hormonal and chemical reactions first. Anytime you are going to consume that, basically, your body's going to regulate itself internally to where you're going to go into ketosis naturally. And what they've done with this product, what it will do, is the test strips that they provide, will actually trigger it to say you're in ketosis when you're actually not. Um, it's bogus science. Don't fall for it. Don't spend the money. Complete waste of time. And as with anything that I always say, if it sounds too good to be true... And it's going to make you skinny overnight. Don't buy it. Don't even waste your time. Well, I hope that helps. And uh, remember, guys, I my company is in the MSB member site. You get 10% off your entire order if you use the coupon code there that I have in there. So, again, guys, check out my new book, Going Off the Grid. Thanks a lot.
1: So basically, if you consume ketones, there'll be ketones in your urine, and your urine will test positive for ketones, and it'll say that you're in ketosis, but you're not, because all you've done is consume ketones and piss them out. that's, That's pretty much what I had inferred over to my wife when she had asked about not this particular product, but basically a similar product. Uh, as soon as I took a look at it, that's that's what it ended up being. I do agree with Gary that people that are already in ketosis, that are uh, high-level athletes, that are pushing themselves, that it may actually help them a little bit, but I think it would be marginal. It would be very, very marginal. But the person that thinks they're going to uh, not quite cut the carb intake that much and then take this and they can still, no. No, 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 no. All right, uh, next question is for Ben Falk on dealing with orient- orienting a house on a piece of land where you have specific challenges in regards to your solar aspect. Uh, ben, take it away.
4: Hello, Ben Falk here with Whole Systems Design, uh, answering any and all questions related to cold climate, permaculture, building systems, architecture systems, um, the process of design and construction, earthworks, etc. etc. I'm out of Vermont, USA. My company is whole system design, a land planning, focused business, and um, have a homestead and a small farm. The question today is one from Georgia, between mid and north Georgia. I'm going to build a small Stravel cottage on a slightly north facing slope. The road is to the south, bordered by three-quarters of an acre of mature forest and then the home site. The biggest issue I have is the lack of winter sun during the coldest months of the year. The sun stays just below the top of the tree line all day. That's a kind of type one challenge for sure. By locating the house close to the west side of the property, the prevailing winter wind will bow over the top of the house. In the summer, I'll get a couple of hours of morning sun from the east that I can let into the house. If I want it, and about one hour from the west, in the evening because of trees. So if I'm not able to take advantage of the passive solar during the coldest time of the year, what other factors do I use to determine how to orient the house? Thanks, Ben and Jack, for all you've done. Derek. So Derek, good question, tough situation. We try to avoid those situations when possible. That's the most important time of year to get the sun is middle of the winter in the middle of the day. But As you know, firsthand, you can't always have that unless you move. Um, so I think you're on to a good approach. Um, you know, if you can't get the middle of the day, morning would probably be next best. And I say morning because you're in a a climate where heat loading is a problem and you get quite warm down there. So be really careful about getting late day sun. Certainly not in the, in the warm season because you could really overload your house with heat that you need to get out of there to sleep comfortably. Um, being anywhere in Georgia means you have heat load as a real challenge. So more than cool, more than heating, you know, cooling is more of a challenge. So heating is easy. Put a wood stove in, take off the chill most of the year where you need it with a little bit of fire. And on the coldest times of the year, burn some real wood. You're not talking too much of it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, way passive solar, direct passive solar is that much of a important thing to begin with. So I wouldn't be too bummed about your situation, first of all. And I would think about a lot of other criteria, which is important, like privacy, views from the house, access to the house, position of the house in the overall landscape. Can you see the landscape really well from the house? Um... What else do you see to the, from the house? Um, are you, do you have good land to the east, south, and west of the house for your zone one gardens? That's a really key building siting criteria. Um, so if you, between access to the house and how, what kinds of positive outdoor space you're actually utilizing and creating by placing the house again to the east, south, and west in this hemisphere, that should drive the house site more than anything. But in some places you have view shed soundscape issues, privacy issues, you know, um, um, you have issues of uh, setbacks from the property boundaries, and then also water and, you know, water's well-drained, and also can you get water to the house in a gravity-fed way? That's a big, really kind of baseline criteria, so that is often... A reason to put a house lower in the landscape. I'm a big fan, if at all possible, of having a house between a third of the way up and two thirds, third of the way above the bottom, at least, and up to two thirds of the way to the top. So a third from the top and a third from the bottom between that in the middle meat of the site. You generally have less advantages of being all the way at the bottom of the property or all the way at the top. Not always, but usually that's the case. Um, so that's some other things to keep in mind. Um, just making sure I got your whole question here those are those are other criteria for citing a home, which is essentially what you're asking. I think. So good luck and uh, keep you know keep thinking about it really strategically as you are.
1: Um, I completely agree. I kind of look at your your climate is not that different from mine, maybe a little colder in the winter, but not much. If I could hundred percent shade my house, And that meant I had to use more energy for heat in the winter when I actually have to heat the house, which is nowhere near as often as I have to cool the house. I would make that swap in in, in an instant, and I would actually take this out of the equation um, and worry about the other benefits of where your house is located. If you have that much shade and the house is going to be predominantly shaded anyway, if you can put it where it's 100% shaded and get like your views right and your, uh, your, your, your functionality right out of your systems, I think that is a better choice. I, I, I wouldn't even be worried about trying to passively solar heat a freaking house in Georgia at all. I'd be exactly the opposite. How do I prevent the house from getting hot? And I wouldn't even, again, I wouldn't even consider it. So I think Ben and I are pretty much in agreement on that one. Uh, The next one we have is a question for uh, Doc Bones on using steam to
5: treat respiratory issues. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, now with over 900 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. This week's question for expert counsel comes from Dean, who writes, Are sawdust, sweat lodges, etc. helpful in treating respiratory infections? I managed to catch a pretty bad upper respiratory infection, which has taken several days for my body to overcome. I've been sidelined with fever, body aches, and coughing up stuff for almost a week. I feel a little better during a hot shower as the mist loosens things up. They got me wondering about what could a person do to help treat something like this in the future. I recall that Indians have swept lodges, Japanese have hot baths, the Finnish have saunas, and I'm wondering, is there something to this, or will I get just as good an effect taking a hot shower or breathing steam from a pot of boiling water? On the herbal side of this issue, what herbs would you advise to help with congestion, perhaps in conjunction with the steam? Dean, For a respiratory infection, you want to have humidity for your nasal passages and to loosen up phlegm. The various methods you mention are essentially the equivalent of a steam inhalation treatment using a pot of hot water. It's just that you're making the entire environment surrounding you more humid. The important thing is to get humidity into the airways. Now, that doesn't mean that some benefit can't be obtained by adding some natural remedies. Steam inhalation therapy utilizes the addition of a few drops of an essential oil, for example, in a bowl of steaming water, distilled or sterilized, please, which is then inhaled. This method is most effective when placing a towel over your head so you can catch the vapors better. This is certainly more concentrated than just having aromatherapy diffusely spread through a large area, for example. Most natural remedies are meant to target individual symptoms, such as natural'm uh, nas- sorry nasal congestion or fever. There are, however, a number of alternative remedies that are reported to help stimulate the entire immune system. Consider these essential oils like geranium, clove oil, clove bud, tea tree, lavender. these are great great items you can place two to three drops in a pot of steaming water or use what's called direct inhalation therapy where you place two to three drops on the palm of your hand and warm it by rubbing your hands together and then bring your hands to your nose and mouth breathe three to five times deeply and slowly relax and then breathe normally for two minutes and then repeat the process wipe any excess oil that you have onto your neck and chest To deal specifically with the congestion, which I think was your question, that goes along with most respiratory infections, consider using direct or steam inhalation therapy with these essential oils. Eucalyptus, rosemary, anise, peppermint, tea tree, pine, or time. Now it's important to remember that individual response to a particular herbal product differs from person to person. Stop using it immediately if you notice any negative effects. Also, the quality of an essential oil may differ dependent on a lot of different factors, including rainfall, soil conditions at the, to- at the time of year harvested, almost like the quality of a wine, dependent on the conditions in which the grapes were grown. This is Joe Alden, MD, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Hey, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, and get 10% off anything in the store if you use the code for Member Support Brigade subscribers. The only thing
1: that I will add to this one is that with the, the recommendations on oils, I always keep, uh, essential oil of peppermint around. And if the congestion is nasal and it's mild, like I sometimes get in the winter, you know, we have that mild head cold or something like that. We're not talking about deep, you know, chest condition. Generally speaking, just a whiff or two from the bottle or, or, or dabbing a little on your finger and touching it under your, kind of like where your mustache area is so that you're, you're getting some constantly will open your nose up amazingly. It's it's so much better than using some kind of antihistamine product like Afrin or something like that. So just that's from my personal experience. It's one of my favorite essential oils for that use specifically. Next, I have a question for getting started making kombucha. And where the heck to get a thing called a SCOBY from for Erica Strauss?
6: Hello, TSP listeners. This is Erica Strauss, author of The Hands-On Home, calling in this week to answer Seth's question about getting a SCOBY for his kombucha. Seth writes in that he's recently discovered kombucha. He wants to try making some himself at home, which, you know, at $4 a bottle at the store, I can't blame him. But he can't find a good source for a SCOBY locally. Now, SCOBY, of course, is what you need to make kombucha. So Seth is wondering, you know, where do I purchase one? Can you give me some advice on finding a SCOBY? What's the deal? How do I get started with kombucha if I can't find a SCOBY? So happy to answer this question. It's a great one. First off, for those of you unfamiliar with the term, SCOBY is an acronym. It stands for Symbiotic Culture of Bacteria and Yeast. And if you've been listening to TSP for a while now, you've probably heard either Jack or me talk about SCOBYs. They're this sort of weird, jello-y, disc-like mother that converts the sweetened, cooled tea into kombucha. Typically, a SCOBY includes one or more strains of Saccharomyces yeast, the same kind of yeast that you would make in, uh, you, you'd brew with or make wine with, along with uh, various acetic acid and gluconic acid producing beneficial bacteria. A SCOBY is a bit like a baker's sourdough starter. It's variable in the sense that it might not contain identical microbiological contents. Um, and you might have a SCOBY in your kitchen that varies a little bit from the SCOBY in your neighbor's kitchen. But all SCOBYs should be completely stable in themselves over thousands of generations if they're properly maintained. So a SCOBY is a top-fermenting culture. It needs plenty of oxygen to work and stay healthy. It floats at the top of the sweetened tea where it has access to all that nice airflow. If you've ever made vinegar a SCOBY mother is very similar to Mother of Vinegar in how it behaves and even in how it looks. And then what happens is that every time you make a fresh batch of kombucha, the SCOBY mother grows an additional layer of baby SCOBY, and these tend to build up over time. So if, like me, you make quite a few batches of kombucha without ever dividing your mother SCOBY, you can very quickly end up with a cellulose disc of SCOBY floating in your jar of kombucha that's, you know, over an inch thick. This happens to me quite regularly. And then I go, oh, what am I going to do with all this SCOBY? And so because a healthy SCOBY multiplies so easily and so readily, what you will find is that pretty much anyone who makes kombucha will have extra SCOBY they can give you. The trick is, of course, finding these people. Generally, you know, people who make kombucha, people who ferment stuff, you know, we're nice. We want other people to do this. So I don't think you're going to have trouble um, with someone giving you a SCOBY. It's just a question of tracking someone down who has one locally who can give it to you. So my first suggestion in tracking someone down who might be able to slip you a piece of SCOBY is to look to your real world and virtual communities. Go to the communities you're already a part of. Seth, you said you looked and you didn't know of any place you could buy a SCOBY in your hometown. And it very likely might be that there just isn't one. But in my experience, the local homebrew store is usually the best neighborhood place to find weird cultures for vinegar making and cheese making and kombucha making. So if you do have a local homebrew store, it might be worth a call to see if they carry Kombucha Mother or if they have local resources they can point you to online, I'd like to suggest that you start right here with the TSP community because you're already a part of it. And TSP is generally full of nice people, right? I would jump on over to the forums and I would look uh, either in the regional board for your state or in the homesteading board where tons of good information comes out or maybe even in the home brewing board. Just do a search for kombucha in the search bar um, for the TSP forums and see what boards are most active and seem most appropriate for your region and for your request. And then, you know, make a post and ask if anyone near you has some kombucha mother they might be able to share. Now, I will mention that um, if someone offers Offers to mail a kombucha mother to you, etiquette is usually that the recipient, and that would be you, pays for shipping, which doesn't cost very much, but just so you know. If the TSP forums don't work, uh, join the Facebook page called Wild Fermentation. Just search on Facebook, Wild Fermentation, it'll pop right up. They have... Oh, close on 100,000 members, I think now. The mods on the Wild Fermentation page run their page pretty tight. This makes the page an excellent no-fluff resource for all things fermentation, but it also means that you need to follow their established system. So if you're looking for a culture, then what you do is once they admit you as a member, you click on the link to Files, and then you find the file called culture shares follow the directions in that file to find someone who will be willing to send you some kombucha mother. And again, typically you'll pay for shipping a few dollars. Speaking of Facebook, do you have a local buy nothing or free cycle group in your area? If so, your local group probably has a Facebook page. This is another good option for a local kombucha handover. Lots of folks who are into low consumption living, who spend a lot of time on buy nothing and free cycle groups, also make their own kombucha. It's that hippie Portlandia crossover thing at work. So just post a polite request to any kombucha makers in the crowd and see if you get a bite. And you can do a personal handoff within your community. Or if the idea of networking or going through a virtual community on Facebook or online to find some kombucha just isn't your thing, you absolutely can buy a starter culture direct. Mail ordered Scobies come in two main varieties, dehydrated ones and ones packaged in a starter liquid, which is basically just kombucha tea. The advantage of the fresh type is that they are ready to go right away. So you can get into a batch of tea and have it fermenting pretty much as soon as your kombucha mother arrives. The disadvantage is you might get an older, weaker SCOBY, especially compared to a fresh SCOBY passed on from a local friend. And you might have some trouble with shipping because this type of SCOBY does have to be shipped with the liquid tea around it. You know, from what I've seen, you're not necessarily getting A lot of scoby either with these packages so you're you're going to be starting with a fairly small mother which means that you are going to have to build up to a full or larger like one gallon batch of kombucha over time the dehydrated scobies are easier to find and definitely less risky to ship and since they last for many months while dried you can order one and if something happens and you can't quite start a batch right away that's not a big deal However, it will take about a month for you to do your first rehydration batch once you decide to get going with your kombucha making. And this is, uh, there'll be instructions, but basically you make um, a kombucha tea with tea, sugar, and a little bit of vinegar just to make sure it's properly acidulated. And then you rehydrate your SCOBY in this batch. The batch that you make for rehydration is typically not consumed. So you're going to be making a 30-day batch of kombucha that you pretty much don't drink, right? That's just to wake your SCOBY back up, get it strong, make sure it's really healthy. And then from there, you take your rehydrated scoby and you can start your first batch that you'd be brewing for you so you know just know if you go for the rehydrated scoby you're going to be waiting a while before you have the ability to get your own actual kombucha for your own consumption going If you decide to order online, I will recommend um, a specific website, Cultures for Health. I'm not affiliated with them, but I do like them for this kind of thing. They provide a lot of fermentation-specific customer advice, and they are very good about helping if you have a question that you need answered that's uh, related to one of their products or almost any ferment that you can imagine. They do offer a dry kombucha scoby for about 15 bucks, and with care, you should be able to rehydrate that and keep it going strong indefinitely. Now, there's one last solution that is in many ways the most fun, but can also be, I think, the most intimidating if you aren't sure about this whole kombucha thing yet. And that is to culture your own scoby mother from store-bought kombucha tea. The process isn't hard, but it does require quite a bit of patience. So what you're going to need is a Whole Foods or a co-op or some other type of hippie market where they sell raw, unpasteurized, unflavored, unfiltered kombucha. So the reason that this is important is because it has to have little flecks of the mother in the kombucha or it's not going to work. So if it's a pasteurized product or something like that, it's, it's essentially dead and you won't be able to grow any of the mother out of that kombucha. Now, as with all culturing experiments like this, it's best if you like the flavor of the end product before you commit to the culture that made that end product. So if you can, and if you have the ability where you are, the variety of product, get a couple different brands of these store-bought kombuchas and try them because the type of SCOBY that made those commercial kombuchas is going to um, convey some distinctive flavor notes into the tea. And you want to make sure that that those are flavor notes that you like. So pick out a tea that you like, pick out a kombucha you like. And when you have your preferred brand all picked out, you're basically going to make a batch of kombucha using store-bought tea instead of adding a kombucha mother and some starter tea. And then you very patiently wait while the little tiny bit of mother that was in that store-bought tea grows out and grows up into a solid opaque disc of kombucha mother. This process where you grow out your own mother will take about a month or two. It'll kind of depend on the room temperature. I wouldn't expect something that you could really work with in less time than about a month. So if you want to do this, it's quite easy. You start by bringing seven cups of water to a boil. Turn off the heat under your pot and then add in half a cup of sugar. I prefer organic, but white cane sugar will work just fine too. Stir to dissolve the sugar and then add either one tablespoon of loose black tea or or four tea bags of black tea. And you let the tea steep until the water is completely cool down to room temperature. Strain your cooled sweet tea into a perfectly scrupulously clean half gallon wide mouth jar, glass mason type jar. And then add in one cup of the raw unflavored unfiltered kombucha from your store bought kombucha, right? Give everything a stir to kind of mix in the store bought kombucha with the sweet tea that you've just made. And then cover this batch of kombucha with a tightly woven clean tea towel. And I like to use a rubber band or a piece of kitchen twine um, around the lip of the jar just to keep the cover really tightly on the jar. And if you use a tea towel, what I like about this is you let the towel hang down over the edges of the jar. This keeps out direct sunlight, so you don't have to be as concerned as to where you set the jar. But just put it someplace out of the way where, you know, you can set it on your counter and it's not going to irritate you. And you can keep it there for, you know, three to six weeks probably periodically peek, you know, pull the pull the little towel up and peek and see what's going on under there. And what you'll notice is that after a couple of weeks, a very thin film will start to form on the surface of the kombucha. And eventually this film will get thicker and it will start to look more solid and more opaque and more um, jelly-like and like a disc. And once this scoby looks firm and opaque and gets to about a quarter of an inch thick, it's big enough to kind of be called a scoby and can be used for future kombucha making. So the kombucha from your starter batch you you can drink it if you like. Um it'll be probably quite tart or you can use it to pre-acidulate your first you know real batch of kombucha that you can now make with your new scoby that you have grown out from your store-bought kombucha. So Seth, I think those are your best options for finding a scoby and getting your kombucha brewing station up and running. Um, do let me know if you have any questions and I'll try and answer them. Just leave your questions in the show notes for today's episode. And in the meantime, have fun. Kombucha is easy. It's rewarding. I think you're going to have a ton of success as soon as you get yourself a SCOBY. Guys, thanks so much for your questions. Jack, thanks for everything you do. Look forward to all your future questions. Please do keep them coming. And I will chat with you guys in a couple of weeks.
1: I guess kind of my, my addition to this one is I don't like kombucha. I don't. I've tried a couple different kinds of it. I don't like it. Uh I like a lot of other fermented things though. And so my statement would be if I can like really not like kombucha, just don't like it at all, but I can like something like kefir and I can like yogurt cheese and I can like fermented vegetables and I can hate kimchi, right? Um, that means that it's it's most likely that there's some lacto-fermented food out there that you would find agreeable, and I think it's such an important thing to your health because, again, when we look at the work of Dr. Weston Price and the healthiest people in the world that he could find were hunter-gatherers and they had certain things in common, and one was every single one of them had some sort of a fermented food in their daily diet. Um, there's something to be learned there and I challenge you to find the thing that will work for you and, uh, and give it a shot. I think it's better than taking, you know, a lactobacillus bacteria probiotic pill. I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think you should maybe not do that if you, if you need to, but if you can find a true nutritious fermented food to include in your diet, I think it is incredibly valuable. And just because I don't like kombucha doesn't mean you won't. You might love it. I find a lot of people that don't like all the stuff I like actually like kombucha. I don't get it, but, hey, that's the way it is. Next one here is for John Pugliano on investing inside your 401K when you have very limited options.
7: Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our our financial question is from Jeff, and Jeff would like to know what my thoughts and position is on the S&P 500, particularly as it relates to someone that has a 401k investment plan at work that offers very limited investment choices. In Jeff's case, it sounds like he only has uh, four or five options. He can buy company stock. He can purchase some bond funds. He can buy an S&P 500 index fund. Or he can put his money in a money market fund. Now, while those aren't horrible options, especially for someone that wants to dollar cost average and just invest in a major index uh, with a buy and hold strategy, you can certainly do that with the S&P 500. I think for people that are very young, you know, maybe somebody that's in their 20s and they've got another 30 or 40 years to go before they need that money. But for people that you know, are in their 50s or someone that might need to tap into that money over the next, say, five to 10 years, then simply putting your money into an S&P 500 index fund can be quite risky, you know, particularly when we are in the situation that we've been in for the past couple of years where the index, all the indexes, the S&P 500, the Dow, the NASDAQ, they're all at historic record highs. The valuations, and that would be, depending upon how you calculate that, that would be something like a price per earnings ratio. They're not extreme bubble levels like we saw during the dot-com bubble, but historically they are high by at least 10%. And that's based on forward earnings estimates that are very rosy and are pricing in a lot of things which may never happen or which may not happen for another year or so, depending upon the political climate in Washington and whether Donald Trump is able to reduce things like regulation and bring down taxes and at the same time. Even if it can do those things, the market has not priced in the risk factor of something like border taxes or tariffs or any type of a trade war that might go on. So I personally remain concerned with the levels that the S&P 500 are trading at. As I say, this is not a new position. I've been, I've been talking about this for several years. We saw the market flash crash in August and October of 2015. We saw it fall even lower than that last uh, January and February of 2016. But we've also seen the market make a phenomenal recovery in spite of some of these major uncertainties occurring like the Brexit in England, the election of Donald Trump. The fact that the Federal Reserve does not have or doesn't appear to have a well-thought-out plan of how they're going to normalize interest rates without crashing the economy. These are all risks that just don't seem to be priced into the expected earnings of the S&P 500. They're things that concern me. I'm not worried about an economic collapse or anything like that. But just assuming that the S&P 500 would simply move to a, a 16 times earnings would drop the market down probably, you know, more than 10% from where it is today. So while I'm not worried about a zombie collapse of the economy, I don't think that if I personally only had four or five choices in my work's 401k plan, that I would be putting all my money into the S&P 500 right now. now. The problem with that is that you say, well, if I put it into a money market fund, I'm just not going to get any interest. And again, I can't give you advice, but I can just give you my own personal opinion. Right now, the official inflation rate is at or below 2%. So if my money is tied up for an entire year in my 401k plan's money market fund, I risk losing 2% of purchasing power on my money over the next 12 months. But you know, it's not unusual for the S&P 500 to fluctuate to 2.5% in any given week. When you look at some of Jeff's other choices, I think they're even worse than going into the S&P 500 fund. Now, I don't know what particular company he works for, and I'm not opposed to investing in your own company's stock, but I certainly wouldn't put more than 10% of my retirement money into the company's stock where I worked. To me, that doesn't offer enough diversification because let's say something happens in the economy where my company's stock is affected – I could lose a large portion of my retirement money that's invested in that stock. And at the same time, if things are bad enough for the sector that my company's in, I might end up getting fired or losing my job or laid off. And so I not only lose a big chunk of my retirement money, but I also lose my income. So that leaves bond funds. And a lot of people have been hoodwinked into believing that bonds are safe. And certainly over the last 35 years or so, since the 1980s, Overall, bonds have been a pretty good investment, but you know, things come in trends and sometimes those cycles are are very long term. And I think that's where we're at with this secular rally in bonds. I don't see a lot of upside to bond prices. You have to remember that when interest rates increase, bond prices, bond principal decreases. And so while bond yields have been coming down for the last 30 years, at some point, they're either going to stagnate like they have, or they're going to start going back up. And whether they stagnate or whether they move back up, in either case, you're either not going to get any growth or you're actually going to lose principal. And I want to stress this because so many people, particularly older or retired people, think that as they move out of, you know, dollar cost averaging into the S&P 500, they should start putting more and more of their money into bond funds. And they think that because that's exactly what not only Wall Street tells them, but the government perpetuates that myth. Well, bond funds are not safe in an environment where you have increasing interest rates. And just to illustrate that point to you, right now I'm looking at Google Finance and I'm looking at the 20-year Treasury Bond Fund, TLT. Now, TLT only invests in the highest grade 20-year U.S. government bonds. That's, you know, the gold standard for security and safety, and yet, over the last six months, that fund has lost over twelve and a half percent. So, how would you like to be a person that's either in retirement or preparing for retirement, or trying to protect themselves from losing money in the stock market? And so, you put your money into a bond fund like this—that's you know, 100% government bonds with absolutely no chance of default or bankruptcy—and you think this is a safe investment. And you look up your quarterly statement and you see that you've lost. Well, that's only the tip of the iceberg for what could happen to bond funds if, in fact, the Federal Reserve does continue to raise interest rates and get them back up to more of a, you know, what they're called normalizing or a normal level, which would be around probably 4% for the 10-year Treasury. These mid- and long-term bond funds could easily lose 25% from here. So you say, well, hey, where do I invest my money? Well, for the last three months or so, if you've been following what I do, my portfolio is concentrated in healthcare ETFs and in international and emerging type markets, ETFs and funds that specialize in those type sectors. I did that because I felt the trends not only favored those sectors, but also because those markets tended to be undervalued compared to the valuations that we're seeing on the S&P 500. And so I'm not telling you that I don't think that there's anywhere safe to invest your money right now. My thoughts are just that someone like Jeff, that's in a very restrictive 401k plan, and their choices basically are company stocks, S&P 500, or bond funds, you know, given those three choices, for now, personally, again, I'm not offering any advice, but personally, me, I'd keep my money in a money market fund for a little longer and ride things out. I think everybody that's my age remembers Alan Greenspan's comments back before the dot com bubble where he talked about the market being priced with irrational exuberance. And he was calling for a pretty significant market correction. But what we might forget is that Alan Greenspan said that about three years before the market actually crashed. And if you took his advice, you would have missed about 100% run up in the S&P 500. And so his comments were accurate. They were just early. I don't think that we're in markets that are as dangerous as they were in the 2000s with the dot-com bubble, but if Donald Trump doesn't deliver and there's any little hiccup or any type of stagnation in corporate profits or a return to what we saw in 2015, then I think the S&P 500 is pretty risky, and I'd rather be safe than sorry. Well, Jeff, thanks for your question. Those are my two cents. I wish I had a better forecast for you, but uh, you know, assuming that you're not 20 years old, for now, I'd keep playing it safe in the money market fund and see how things actually do end up playing out in the economy. If you'd like to hear more about my stock market commentary, please check out the Wealthsteading podcast. I have also recently started putting up some videos over at YouTube. You can access those through Wealthsteading.com. And the emphasis on the YouTube channel is to show people how they can use simple things at home, like Yahoo Finance, to draw their own charts, or to calculate things like simple moving averages. For the Expert Counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth.
1: So my, my addition to this is going to be, I hate 401ks unless you have a very significant employer match. If you have a 401k and your employer says, what you do is you get to put money in it and they don't give you any sort of a match, then just don't do it. Then set up a Roth IRA, and that way you have an infinite number of choices of what you can invest in. And that makes a hell of a lot more sense, in my my personal opinion. So that would be my addition there. Like, you're going to tell me your 401k sucks, so... The only reason then, if you get a dollar-for-dollar match, you can make a 100% return on your contributions. You just throw in a money market account, and you made a 100% as you contribute. And if you look at making a 10% return over 10 years, then you can sit there for 10 freaking years, and you're at a 10% average annual return. That's fine. If they're giving you a dime on a dollar, don't even bother. You can do better for yourself than that, Saving your money in a Roth IRA with infinite options. That's that's my view on that one. Next, I have a question for. Um, it's actually kind of a follow up series uh, from Mike and Sue Laprise. They've already covered the first part of this uh, from a, a person that feels like homeschooling's under attack. In the first part, they talked about basically evangelizing homeschooling, sharing what you're doing versus being afraid to because it's under attack. Today, they're going to address three specific articles that the person who wrote the original question had concerns about, So these are reasons I feel like we're under attack. Mike and Sue, take it away.
0: This is Michael and Sue Lapreze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hi, Jack. Today we're following up with um, a, a letter we got from Debbie, and Debbie was concerned about homeschooling being under attack, and she referenced three articles So today we're going to address those articles. So Debbie's concern was that homeschooling is under attack. And the first article was from a superintendent of schools in Arkansas, and the superintendent was saying, despite the SAT scores of homeschoolers versus government school students, that the government schools in his area uh, provided a more rigorous curriculum than homeschoolers. So as absurd as that may sound, that their curriculum is more uh, rigorous, but they don't do as well on the test. I would say that's what you would expect from a school superintendent. He's got to defend his school system. So our uh, homeschool is under attack. I would say yes, because freedom is under attack. In order for government to have control, they have to limit freedom.
8: And so a lot of freedom comes down to ownership. And if we took land, for example, that there's not vacant land hanging out in America. It's either owned by an individual or by the government, state or federal government. And then, I mean, you think it's owned by the individual, but imagine if you don't pay your taxes, who ends up owning your land? It's not you. So the question freedom lovers should be asking themselves is the title of a great book by Blair Adams called Who Owns the Children and in 1991 he wrote a book and the premise is that government school is a means of control that the elites use to dumb down society and mainly to provide workers for those factories and so one of the problems we have with that system is the factories are disappearing and so I know in our own life in our daily life when we go to payway we don't Go to Payway. We use our app on our phone and we put our order in, and then I walk in and say, My name is Sue, and they hand me my food. It's already paid for. And that's our whole interaction. We get about 50% of our goods delivered straight to our home, including our seeds from Baker Creek Seed Catalog, who also, by the way, has a really cool automated system that pulls the packaged seeds off the shelf. They go down a little conveyor belt and go into a box. And they send me that box, and there is a person that checks. It's this cute little homeschool girl. She's about 10, and she checks to make sure the machine put the right seeds in my box, and then she closes it up and sends me my box. And the FedEx lady, we do happen to have some interaction because she gives my kids candy to make sure they run and help her bring boxes in.
0: So remember, President Trump got elected, Donald Trump got elected, because he was going to bring back jobs as we know, these are jobs that aren't coming back because those jobs don't exist anymore. So what do you do with people who are trained to be factory workers? What do you do with them if they're being trained for jobs that don't exist anymore? Well, one of the things you can do is you can keep them in school for as long as you can. Everyone should go to college. Everyone has a right to a college education. Do we not hear that? We hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. So how do you keep them in school? There are some kids who just aren't gifted to be college students. But you can keep them in school. Remember, our children are children until they're 26, according to the government. You can keep them on your insurance until they're 26. But how do you keep them in school if they're not really geared for a college education? Well, the one thing you do is you don't fail anybody.
8: Yes, so the average cumulative score in college in 1950 was 2.52, which is a C. And a C is, you're like me, you think C is average. The average student would get a C. On any given test half the kids would probably be above average and half would be below that's what makes average well in 2006 apparently we've gotten a lot smarter because the average is a 3.11 or a B so it's like everyone gets a trophy it's so cool we can all stay in school till we're 26 and we don't have to actually get a job because we can live at home or have our schooling paid for by the government and we all win in theory and um, we don't give any bad grades that would be horrible so this person we know this young girl um, was failing a class in college and it wasn't for her degree program it wasn't information she was going to use again she just went to the teacher and said how do i bring this grade up what do i need to do and she'd have to do anything he just gave her an a she went from failing to an a just by asking the question
0: because you didn't want to disgruntled student right So Jack referenced in episode 1966, just the other day, uh, the New York teacher's assessment. Uh, In that assessment, they're trying to do away with it because they say that the assessment is racist. So of that assessment, 50% of the teachers passed the assessment. But it was considered racist because white teachers passed that 64%. Still 64% of the teachers passed the assessment. So... It's kind of ironic. So New York, there's a New York government school official who was saying that that the test doesn't indicate actual success of teachers or the success they have in the classroom. Hmm. So if that's true, then why test the kids? So let's figure this out. Let's test the students, but let's not test the teachers. Right.
8: So the second article that Debbie had um, sent to us was on the value of the homeschool diploma and it's a story about two daycare workers in Arizona who were homeschooled and they didn't have an official accredited diploma and so the state agency that evaluates these facilities said that they needed to get a GED because their diploma wasn't good enough and um, we're talking about daycare workers here, so you can get this job while you're in high school part-time, and it's a minimum-wage job. And if I, But even so, if I were 50 years old, let's say I'm 50 years old, and I'm going to go to the daycare, and I got my high school diploma in 1982, and I haven't been to school since then, I can go get that job at the daycare. And I am qualified because 32 years ago, 35 years ago, I got a high school diploma. It doesn't make sense to me because what would be a quality that you would want from a daycare worker? In my view, you would want somebody who actually liked children, somebody who enjoyed being around children all day, who didn't mind noise, who didn't mind the smell of a daycare. I worked at a daycare when I was in college, so I just feel like the high school diploma does not qualify you to be a daycare worker. So What does a diploma tell us, anyways?
0: It tells us that you've made it through the system. But which system? So we look at a a high school diploma and we say, oh, you've got a high school diploma. You're high school educated. Then the question would be, well, which high school? Yeah. So even within where we live, there are numerous um, independent school districts, whether it's the North Side, Northeast, San Antonio. Uh, Marion, there's a whole bunch of them, just a, a number of school districts, and depending on where you are, depending on the value of the homes in the neighborhood, uh, would have a lot to say, I think, in terms of the, the quality of the education, because the really good teachers want to go to the really good high-rent district um, schools. Well,
8: that's where they want to live, that's where they want their kids to go to school, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. so not in the inner city. Yeah. So. Uh, My own personal experience, as I've told you all before, I grew up in the inner city, and um, I will tell you this, Jack, I know you went to some years of Catholic school, so did I, there was a choice between going through a Catholic school, my parents were, were glad, my dad was a butcher, owned a butcher shop, and he put me through a Catholic school, I've been really thankful for that, so my graduating class was 93. In the public school in my neighborhood, the graduating class was about 1,200, so a much different school.
8: Yes, so even in the same school district, the same high school, the value of that diploma, if you have 1,200 graduates, the person who graduates first in their class and the kid who actually graduates at number 1,200, doesn't count the ones who didn't graduate, but the value of that diploma being equal, we both got a diploma from the exact same high school, It's just it doesn't make sense that there's not the same value in a diploma that can cover you across whatever job you're going to get. That's really not where the value lies, even for your future.
0: So even today in the business world, there's a big debate going on. And I think one side's winning the debate. It's diplomas versus certifications. So if you were going to work at Google or Microsoft, lots of companies are now looking for people with certificates. And so what does a certificate say? A certificate says, I know what I'm talking about in the field I'm working in, whether it be IT, welding, HVAC, plumbing, EMT, any of those fields, you've got to go and pass certifications that says that I'm qualified. So no certification equals no interview.
8: Yeah, so it's kind of like, I don't need my welding guy to come re-weld a piece of my metal building. I need don't need to know what gender studies class he took or did he take art history. That doesn't matter to me. I want to know, is he a good welder?
0: So where I work, it's a Fortune 500 company. Uh, they take people who are non-degreed in the company who are working like on the phones as customer service reps. And if they apply, they can get accepted into a program which trains them to become IT developers, so they learn certain IT languages, and it, so it's, it's they become IT developers with no degree, but they do get a certificate.
8: Okay, and so then Debbie's final article was about a couple who starved their 16-year-old homeschool daughter to death, and that is... Um, we don't feel like that's a homeschool issue. That's a horrible Issue, But the lawmakers in that state are saying, we want home checks for homeschoolers. And the reality is that in that one situation, there were numerous calls by neighbors to report child abuse to the Department of Human Services with no response. I'm not even saying somebody came out a couple of times. There was no response.
0: And as sad as this is, and it is extremely sad... It happens to government school students as well. It's not a homeschool problem. It's a societal problem. Why didn't human services respond if the state is going to take care of us? right? We have to ask ourselves that. If the state's going to take care of us and people are calling, why didn't they respond?
8: And so as adopters and foster parents, we're pretty, we're pretty well versed in how the state works. And um, they're overworked. So to say that they're responsible for everyone in the world. It just, it can't work like that.
0: So, to wrap this all up for Debbie, what seems to be a tax on homeschoolers is really a barometer of the attacks on our liberties as a society. So whether we homeschool or not, as volunteerists, we should be supporting everyone's freedom to choose. Because it's not up to the state, it's up to us as individuals. So... If you want to live the life that you're designed to live, choose freedom. So take every step you can towards freedom and away from tyranny. This has been Michael and Sue Lapreze with HaloBySue.com. Thanks, Jack.
1: Okay, rather than take a a question for myself like I usually do uh, as the the kind of the anchor on on this uh, Friday show, I want to actually follow up to something they said that I think is very astute. It is freedom that is under attack. Freedom has always been under attack by the people in power because freedom for you means less power from them. But it seems like freedom is under greater attack today than it has been for a very long time. There's there's two reasons, and the second one is the one I want to key in on. The first one is because in some ways... There's more freedom today than there ever has been, in some ways. That's very scary, because that means that there's been a sliding loss of control. Now, there's a lot of dumbed-down people in society that are still easily controlled. Even though they have access to freedom, they choose not to use it. This is what keeps the oligarchs and the plutocrats and the, 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 the elected officials happy for now. But they see the writing on the wall, which brings me to the second reason that freedom is under such attack right now. Vin Armani and I talked about it this week. The state, as an entity, across the developed world, has grown so large and so bloated that its only purpose at this point is to survive, to maintain itself, to not lose. If we look at a lot of what governments are doing now, you're passing redundant laws, you're passing redundant bills, you're not repealing anything. They, there's really nothing left to, to regulate. If I had gone into a different direction with the history segment today, you learn about things like the Clean Water Act and things like that that all happened in the, in the 60s and 70s. And uh, right now, some of these environmental regulations that Trump wants to pull back and and let companies have a little bit more breathing room, everybody's screaming, the water will be on fire again, and shit like that. Well, he wants to repeal shit that Obama did. Okay, what cleaned up all these rivers was the Clean Water Act and other things that were done in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. See, that fixed the problem. That was where government actually stepped up and fixed a problem. Maybe not the best way they could have, but... I, even I, as a voluntarist, have to admit that what was done was better for the environment. All this shit that was lumped on 30 years later is not necessary. We didn't have rivers on fire in 2000, you know, 2007, and then Obama came in and fixed it. And there's just everywhere you go, every area you look at in government, it's more, more, more when. If we didn't need it 10 years ago, why do we need it today? And with technological uh, you know, evolution, there's some answers to that, but a lot a lot of places there's not. There's just not an answer to why we need something today we didn't have 10 or 20 years ago if everything in that world has been okay for the last 10 or 20 years. So the state is seeking to survive, which brings me to the, the, the turning point in all of this. They are being made irrelevant. And hence, they must attack the things that make them irrelevant. They must attack the things that make them irrelevant. And one of the things that has made the state far more irrelevant in the minds of so many people in the last 10 years specifically is the growth and success of homeschooling. There's a lot of other things, like cryptocurrencies. And if you start to think about what's going on out there and put it all together, so what's happened is if you had told somebody in 1980... We do not need the government to run a public education system. It can be done without them. You would have had about a 99.9% chance that that person would have thought you were crazy. Let's say that today 20% of the people in the country can at least look at that statement and say, well, maybe there's some merit to it. Maybe the state doesn't need to be so, do you understand how big that is? See, it's not just about the total number. It's the momentum and the direction the wind is blowing. And with the continued evolution of technology, it is going to be such that children will be able to get a better education faster with no, quote-unquote, schooling at all. There will be lots of learning, lots of education, lots of uh, interactivity, but there doesn't ever have to be any framework called schooling over it. It's not necessary. Now, consider what percent of the United States government's total spending is in the education sector and the, the government uh, guaranteed loan component of that into even the private sector of education. How many bureaucrats, how many government employees can go away if we can just take away 20% of what the, 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 the public sector is doing, the government sector is doing in regards to education? Of course you're scared if you're a superintendent of a school district and, hey, all of these homeschoolers around you being educated by these country bumpkins are smarter than the kids coming out of your school. And you realize that we haven't even really begun to tap what technology can do for education yet. And that if I use technology as my primary tool for education, I don't need your building. I don't need your infrastructure. I don't need your rules. I don't need you telling me when my, my I can have access to my child. I don't need that anymore. But it's not just school, is it? What if you told somebody in 1985? You know what we could do? We could create our own money. And they say, oh, you mean because there were silver bugs and gold? you like, use silver, right? Oh, no, silver sucks for money. It's it's heavy It has risk of being stolen during transportation. You know, if you put it into any kind of electronic thing, the government has total visibility and access to it. No, I mean, we could create our own money, basically like a credit-based system, where people can exchange credits with each other of some sort, and it'll all be done electronically, and it can either be very public or very private. And you say, well, where will this currency get its value? And you said, well, what we'll do is we'll set up a system where people have to use math to, 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 to mine out each credit. And there will be a certain number of credits over a certain period of time. And that way it won't be counterfeitable. And they explained it basically the way that Bitcoin works today. And, the, and then you know what they would have said? Well, what backs it? Where does it get its value? And you say, well, when it's exchanged within the economy between people who will accept it, currency actually derives its value from the economy, not from some mythical thing that a gold bar or a government promise backs it. That money is really based on the value of its ability to be exchanged, and what controls it and makes it stable is a cap on the total quantity. That's all we really need is a cap on the total quantity, an assurance that the transactions are safe and secure and reliable, and an assurance that they can't be counterfeited. If we just had all that, we could have our own money, and we don't need government to make money anymore. We don't need debt to make money. We don't need gold to make money. We can just agree upon a framework, and then the economy will set the value of the money. They would have thought you were nuts. They would have said, oh, you're going to be like Zimbabwe and the, the Weimar Republic and you print money and you can't do that. But what do we have today? Anybody that understands Bitcoin, Ether, Ethereum, Dogecoin, all these other cryptocurrencies today, when you tell them we don't need government to create money and we don't need a metal to make money either, that we can actually do what they've been doing for 100 years better and value-for-value value exchange sets the value of the exchange token, they they go, of course we don't need government to do that. Look, it works fine right here. It works fine right here. And Well, people will say, well, it, it only works because you can swap it into dollars. Go ask the average Bitcoin user how often they exchange their Bitcoin for dollars. Why would I? Why would I? I'm holding... A deflationary currency. Why would I put my money from a deflationary currency into an inflationary currency? Translation, I'm holding a currency that in spite of volatility over time gains value because it has to because math says so. And you're using a currency that loses value over time and it has to because math and the plan of your government says so. The dollar cannot become worth more over 10 years. It has to become less. We call it inflation. And it's actually a financial disaster for this country because of the way it's run if it does become stronger. So you know they won't let it. You're holding a currency with a fixed total final value that's only being used by about 1% of the world right now. If 2% of the world decided to use Bitcoin tomorrow, it would quadruple in price because it has to due to availability. But there'd never be a shortage because it's infinitely fungible into fractions so we've now taken away the need of the government to provide an education and to provide a monetary system you think freedom's going to be under attack? do you understand the world you're living in today? and then we look at something um, like like Swarm City and I, I think Ethereum is the next level of cryptocurrency I really do because it can do things Bitcoin cannot. It's the next generation. And it can help others create their own currencies backed by it. Which is exactly what I said we needed four years ago to create the concept of virtual nations. And Swarm City doing this with their Swarm City token. Where people can exchange value for value of service and things like that. And swap that token inside a closed system that your government can't even conceive of. Can't even conceive of where you can put hashtag. It's not available yet. This is what they're building. You just put hashtag roofing in your app. Boom, and it's geocentric. And people that are willing to do roofing within Swarm City start making, you know, saying they'll come to give you a bid or whatever. And when they finish the work, you give them the Swarm City tokens of the amount that we agreed upon. There's a contract and you and the roofer both gain trust within the system so that you are now more trustworthy. And now, what else do we not need? Well, I don't need the government to tell me whether this roofer is trustworthy or not. He can't even do business in the system without either negatively or positively affecting his trust. It is impossible for him to do business in this system without developing a track record that shows whether or not he's trustworthy. So now we're we're, we're talking about getting rid of the need to have things like licenses and government certifications, because the market can tell. Why do you think freedom is under attack? Do you even understand, audience, do you even understand that we are standing at a precipice of making massive amounts of government unnecessary, irrelevant, extinct? Extinct. Extinct. Now, I want you to think about this. If your existence was threatened, don't think like government, just you personally. If your existence was threatened, how hard would you fight to maintain your right to exist? Now here's the thing. You, as a being, have a right to exist. The state has no right to exist. You can argue for the need for a state or the value of a state, but you cannot argue for the right of the state to exist. It has no rights. It is to be instituted by men and women to protect the rights of men and women. That is the purpose of a state. It says so in our founding documentation. Okay? Okay. We've lost our way from that, but that is what this na- our nation was founded on a singular belief, a true singular belief, that governments were instituted to protect the rights of the citizens of the state. That's the only reason they exist. It was a revolutionary idea at the time, and one that fell away because the state will always grow. And the state has been able to grow so effectively for so long because of perceived need until technology began to enable us to replace what we thought we needed with something that works better and is more fair and more impartial. Contract resolution. On these Ethereum networks, if I have a contract with you, the blockchain is a truth teller. We'll know who told the truth and who lied in our interactions. And we'll have trust. If I've screwed over everybody I've ever worked with, and you decide to give me a chance, and now it looks like I've screwed you too, and you have perfect trust records from everybody else, who's an arbitrator going to side with? Oh, gee, are we starting to negate the, the need for at least part of a criminal justice and a civil justice system too? Yeah, freedom's under attack because freedom's on the rise. Freedom's on the rise. That's a good way to end the week, to realize that's what's really going on, and that's why they're afraid. That's why they're afraid. I'll end with a quote. Not my favorite person, but he said a few things right, and this was one of them. First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. You win. Think about the rise of cryptocurrency, ignored, then mocked and laughed at especially by the precious metal people who were on the same side of the Liberty fight we were Uh, because they couldn't understand it. Then the full court press against Bitcoin. And then all of a sudden, tax guidance for how to pay taxes on it and an approval that you can actually contribute to a political candidate in Bitcoin. And people are like, Bitcoin? (laughs) You guys don't understand anything. You guys don't understand anything. We're already in the next generation of this stuff. Bitcoin is just a store of value. We're building something that replaces you. Then they fight you, and then you win. Especially when they choose to engage in the fight. Final thought: Generally speaking, if the person, if both parties are prepared, the person that attacks loses. The attacking first only works when your opponent's not prepared. When your opponent's prepared. You usually give up something in the attack. You give up something that allows them to react. And in the reaction, they're able to use your attack and your momentum against, them, against you. Now, if your opponent's not prepared, so stay prepared, my friends. Stay prepared. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, uh, one of the things you can do is do your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Just get over to tspaz.com and check out the reviews we do for you with Amazon products every day. I have an encore item up today on tspaz. Um, it's a kitchen item. It's a pair of shears for your kitchen. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a yeah, big, exciting thing. Sh- kitchen shears. Look, these are Red Yeti Wear kitchen shears. I tried a half a dozen different varieties of kitchen shears to find these. These are the best ones. If you look at the reviews on Amazon, you'll see why. One of the key things is they come apart. I want kitchen shears to come apart because I might cut chicken with it one day and vegetables the next day, and I don't want salmonella. They're sharp, and they stay sharp. They're built like a tank. And, you know, a lot of times shears that come apart, they just come apart when you don't want them to. Yeah, they stay together until you want them to come apart. They're made with 2CR14 stainless steel, Uh, They have micro serrations on the blade, which makes them cut better. They're outstanding. And one of the reasons I included them today is I went back and I looked at 2006 and all the products that I reviewed. This was a top 20 product for all of 2016. And I've heard zero complaints. And I'll tell you what, if I recommend something and anything goes wrong, I hear about it. With the number of people out there, I hear about it. Again, this is a top 20 item for 2016 uh Lots of your fellow TSP'ers are using it. Check it out. Remember, you can always find the Amazon Deals of the Day and support TSP by shopping at TSPAs.com. With that, let's talk about the song of the day. I'm kind of jazzed about this one because I get to teach you guys something, and I, I like to teach people. I really do. Uh, many of you will be familiar with this song because it's your national anthem, Star Spangled Banner. Many of you will be familiar with at least part of the version because it's by one of the most famous guitarists in history at one of the most famous uh, rock concerts in history, Woodstock, Jimi Hendrix, playing the Star Spangled Banner. I think there's a lot of people that have heard this whole thing, and there's a lot of people that have only heard parts of it, little sound bites of it. We're actually hearing the Star Spangled Banner itself. And then I think there's parts of it where people hear the whole thing and they fe- seem a little confused. I want to start out with you know, John Adam, who puts these together for me. Here's what he said about it. It was recorded August 18, 1969, the last day of Woodstock Music and Art Festival. Hendricks explained its meaning. Quote, we're all Americans. It was like, go America. We play it the way the air is in America today. The air is slightly static. See, Jimmy was an honorably discharged Army veteran, musical genius, bad drunk, and drug addict. The last two make for a short life, indeed. Um, but... Jimi Hendrix was patriotic and anti-war at the same time. Which a lot of people at Woodstock War, they were all being labeled as these, you know, commie pinkos and stuff like that, but you can love your country and not want it at war. In fact, if you love your country, you shouldn't want it at war. And so when people listen to this, they hear kind of the intro and then all of a sudden it starts playing it and it's like, wow. Can't believe somebody could do that with a guitar, and then it gets garbled and staticky, as Jimmy called it there. But it gets almost like a thrashing, and not really a music thing at all. And then it comes back to the Star Spangled Banner, and then it goes back to this thrashing and like just like people think it's like freestyling in a bad way or something. And what's going on in between? I want you, when you listen to this song today, to understand what's going on. It's the sounds of war in between different verses of the Star-Spangled Banner. It's the sound of bombs. It's the sound of people screaming. It's the reality of war interlaced with the national anthem. It's about it's about pride in who you are and understanding where we were at as a nation causing death at the same time. And that we're better than that. That we're better than that. That we can be better than that. And it was honoring those that died that had no choice or chose to sacrifice. And you'll hear at one point, as they're in and out, it won't be the Star-Spangled Banner, and it won't be thrashing. It will be Taps, which is what you play at the funeral of a fallen soldier. And Then it'll come back again and finish up. And if you've never understood the poetry going on in this version of the Star-Spangled Banner, it might be like you've heard it for the first time today. When you hear the whining of the guitar and realize, that sounds like a mortar coming in. That sounds like guns going off. and It sounds like guns going off in two separate directions, as though they're opposing each other. That sounds like the scream of a human being. That's what this man did with a guitar. There could not be a better song selected for the year 1969. John, you did good picking this one. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.